0: You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, attorney Dan Mayer and licensed counselor, Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, Dan and I are super excited to welcome Whitney Owens. As Dan says, Whitney is now a member of a very special club of people who have been on the Protecting Your Practice podcast two times now. (laughs) Thank you. So Whitney Owens is a licensed professional counselor, group practice owner, and faith-based private practice consultant. She has a group practice, a private pay group practice with 10 plus clinicians and along with running her practice, she offers consultation to practice owners around the country on how to start and grow a successful faith-based practice. She hosts a summit, a weekly podcast, a membership community for faith-based practice owners called Wise Practice. She's pretty busy, as you can tell.
1: I guess so. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Melissa getting our hands and sure. lots of different things.
0: Yes.
2: You know, I was funny because I was watching an old clip that's done live, and there's like a, a running joke where like these repeat members come back and they joke about having jackets stuff like that and that's what made me think of that right So we don't have a jacket for you but we are appreciative that you are you are back here to talk to us um and i think today it's, it's going to be a really interesting conversation like melissa said because um i think you have a really unfortunate but really interesting situation that came up that a lot of practice owners um may run into so i will let you kind of proceed from there at that point but thank you so much for joining us again
1: Yes. Well, thank you. Well, as cheesy as it sounds, um, my gift is just being with you guys and being able to podcast because it is a lot of fun. And um, you provide a great value to the community. And so um, if this story is able to help, then great, even though it was not a great story.
0: Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, when we were talking about getting ready, I thought that is such a relatable story. I think among group practice owners who are talking about challenges they face, this is something that comes up a lot, but with different variations. And so my hope is in talking about this today, we can also maybe offer some best practices, (laughs) the do's, the don'ts, and the reasons why it's um, wise and ethical to provide, you know, to proceed a certain way. 100%.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll share a little bit about the situation, kind of where my practice was at and kind of how I handled it. And, you know, we can go from there. Um, so at this point in time, this was pre-COVID, mm-hmm. um, and I think I had about six clinicians at the time. I had one therapist who was working another job and working for me. And believe it or not, red flag, she was like doing both full-time, not not ever a very good idea. And she had been asking me for telehealth approval because she was wanting to do some telehealth with clients in other states because she was licensed in a few other states so it was something we had discussed we had actually done a little bit of like training on it and practicing on our telehealth system but then in the end of the day she ended up not really moving forward just didn't seem very motivated about it and I was like okay well if you ever decide you want to pursue telehealth as part of what we offer at the practice You know, we can add that component, Mm -hmm. which means adding telehealth and approval and liability and thinking about these things. So months later, as a good practice owner, I am, you know, I'm looking at the calendar and just making sure everybody knows when they're in each office, making sure they're seeing the clients. I've asked them to see that kind of thing. And I look and see that there's two people scheduled for the same office. So this two different clinicians share the office. And so they both had a client scheduled at the same time. So I contact this employee and I say, Hey, I just want to make sure you're aware that that's not your office time. And so you're going to have to reschedule that client. And she said, Oh, I'm seeing that client telehealth. So I was already like, wait, like we don't have that in our consent paperwork. Mm -hmm. Like we, we haven't done that yet. And I was like, Oh, you want to do telehealth? Like we can add that if you'd like to, I didn't realize it. And she said, oh, you don't need to worry about it. I'm seeing them through my telehealth platform. I said, oh, well, you know, it's a client at our practice. We need to make sure that that platform's approved for us. And then she proceeded to let me know that she was on insurance panels at another practice. And I was like, oh. And so then I figured out she had her own practice. What had been, she said she had not been seeing a lot of clients that way, who knows? So then I called my attorney because my real big concern at that moment was Mm -hmm. not only telehealth, but the insurance part, we take cash. So for a client to come and see her at our practice, let's just say they take Cigna. Well, she is paneled with Cigna, even though it's under a different MPI. All these insurances have different rules and contracts, and I don't have access to her contracts. So I was worried about that. Well, then the attorney goes, well, have you looked her up online? I was like, no, I, I like that didn't even cross my mind. So she had had a practice for four months. She had obviously done all the things I had taught them within marketing on your website and these kinds of things in the Google My Business. But the kicker was she had stolen the picture from my headshot that I paid someone to come and take for her. She's a W-2 employee. I own that photo. She had taken that photo and put it on her website. And used it on all <laughs> her marketing <laughs> materials.
0: Oh,
1: oh boy. <laughs> so many things
0: in there. So many things in there. So I guess the first thing that I am wondering I mean, one, I hear you called your attorney, right? So you got consultation right away. Um, talk with us about some of, I guess, one, some of the things that were immediately going through your mind as the group practice owner. And also, what were some of the first things that you decided to tend to since there were a few different things going on?
1: Yeah. Well, as a group practice owner, a lot of betrayal, you know, and feeling like I thought I had made these things an offer for you to do the kind of work you wanted to do here. And then you went and did it somewhere else like that. That felt really bad. Um, Mm -hmm. And then talking to my attorney, I think that's always one of the best things to do whenever you run into a situation, especially when it's employee related, because you do not want to mess that up. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that him and I discussed was you know, how do I want to proceed? And of course we decided it was best for her not to work at the practice anymore. Um, and he encouraged me, you know, if she can put in her resignation, that would be much better than you having yep. to terminate. Right. So this we it sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, right. So he did write a termination letter for me, or we kind of wrote it together overnight. Um, and I had it prepared. And then I told her we needed to meet in the morning and thank goodness she gave me her resignation letter before I gave her the termination. So it, all worked out better. And I gave her a two weeks. Oh, it just, it was all bad, actually. I mean, I gave her two weeks to be able to transfer all of her clients and all this kind of stuff. She didn't write her discharges. I told her to document her conversation with every client, letting them know that she'd be leaving. And we gave them a letter, you know, saying, Hey, you know, she's going to have this other practice down the street if you want to see her there, or you can stay with us. But she didn't document all that. So then we had to call all these clients and make sure, make sure, right? Because you've got to document if that client was made aware and what they decided to do. And we had to do all those discharges. Like that termination paperwork is really important. And she didn't do it. She did it for some of them, but not all of them. And you got to get that done. So it was taxing on the practice, but, but we got through it. Um, And then as far as like the picture, there was some back and forth about that through email um, and some legal language. And she had an attorney as well. And so I ended up dropping that because I just didn't feel like it was worth the fight. Um, But yeah, she still has her practice here and still a competitor with
0: SEO because I see it pop up. Oh, man. Yeah.
2: That's like, it's funny because I've had this conversation and I've had this email come to me. And it's always the clients that I work with when something like this comes up and it's an employee issue. I like that is like what I agree. That's like the first thing that I usually hear about It's like, well, I need to set a point with you because there's something wrong with my client or, or one of my uh, contractors, one of my employees. And, you know, that's exactly what happens. And because of, you know, this is one of those areas where as a practitioner, you know, really touches on what the law says here. It's not just your ethics here because. Now you're dealing with employee relations, you know, and they're, they're, every state has their own rules. It, you do have, you have to be very careful. I think that was the, the, the right choice. I agree with your attorney that, you know, the best option in your case, and, I, and I've had, and that's why I said it, that sounds familiar, is because I've had this exact conversation where I'm like, who'd be really great if this employee could just resign? Like, if you can get this person to just leave, that's the best alter opportunity here, right? You know, um. but it's funny. I was thinking when you were saying that, that this person probably knew when you said, hey, we need to meet. I bet you she already knew that you were, what this was going to be about, and she probably was expecting this
1: conversation. She she was, and she told me that. And when I did talk to my attorney, the other thing he was concerned about was insurance fraud, mm-hmm. right? And so when I used that verbiage with her, she who knows? I think she was pretty cunning, to be honest with you. She mm-hmm. threw me one, but. She acted like she was very surprised and was like, "Oh, I can't believe I would ever put you in jeopardy or the practice in jeopardy. Like I would never do something like that. I never knew what I was doing was Not wrong." Totally. <laughs> that's what she said, and I was right. like,
0: mm. yeah. "Yeah, well, and I think the thing that's interesting. I mean, as a group practice owner, as you know, as I'm listening to all of these things, right? It was one thing after the other, right? Like one with the telehealth, which becomes an issue with HIPAA." um like so many issues like the picture and all of the things that you mentioned and yet at the same time even though you know that these things are concerns and you understand the reason why they are concerning and why they're issues as a group practice owner you know sometimes the people who are doing these things I don't, i'm not sure if it's like i had no i truly had no idea right but people who are doing things that are really 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 problematic not knowing how problematic they are or the impact one, the impact for the group practice, yeah, so there's just seems to be a discrepancy, right? What you know as a group practice owner versus the person who's doing these things, and you're like, uh, you know, all these bells are going off."
2: I you want know, to clear and I want to clarify something here that you know that some practices have have different opinions about this, right? You know, I know some practices where they don't they don't mind if one of their clinicians or their clinicians are doing work somewhere else in addition to them, right? You know, and that's that's a conversation that's happened, and, and everyone's upfront about it, right? And other practices are like, no, like you know, like you said, like it's a full time job being a therapist. You know, if you have twenty five, you know, um, thirty uh, uh, cases or clients a week or something like that, you know, that's a full caseload. Um, so being able to balance that with doing another full time at somewhere else is really too difficult, right? I for me, you know, just even this to your story, you know, it's always less like the person was you know, competing against you or um, working somewhere else. Although, you know, that's, again, if the practice has a, has a policy on that, that's one thing. But the the larger concern here is, and probably where your attorney office was like, oh my God, was, you know, the fact is that when a client's coming into your practice or new client's coming into your practice, I have this conversation with a practitioner all the time. If you're giving them paperwork that says your practice name on it, if you ask that, that client, who are you going to see? They may say, oh, I'm seeing so-and-so therapist. But they also will... Likely, I you know think indicate why I've seen ABC practice, right? And so there's a big issue there if all of a sudden then that client is with or without their consent, especially without their consent, as all of a sudden being seen under an entirely different practice, right? And that's where the real the real seriousness of this comes in. um just you know I'm saying and I'm making this clarification for those listening, right? is it's certainly a pro- a problem for you, the practice owner, right? but From a larger perspective, the bigger issue here is what's happening that we don't know about? Like, who's the clients that have been kind of shipped over this other practice? Do the clients know this, you know, as everything on board? Because if not, that's where everyone gets into
1: trouble. That was very scary to me. And that was that first conversation I had with her. Mm -hmm. she was like, oh, I haven't been seeing him. I haven't been billing him under my practice. I'm still billing him under yours. And I was very, that was very worried about that. Like, what if she started billing everybody under hers and I missed mm-hmm. it, you know? Right.
2: Absolutely, right. And then, you know, and, and in her case, you know, it doesn't sound like there was anything intentional, but I've seen situations where there was very intentional behavior, right? And that's where it becomes very, very risky, right? Because, you know, if someone is, had a had a notion to try to say, well, let's see if I can sneak this through, that's where it gets really serious.
1: I think it was intentional the other reason I think it was, Mm -hmm. was it was four months. It'd be one thing if she just started it, but to be doing something for four months, if anyone had another job that they were doing for four months, even if it wasn't clinical, surely they would eventually talk about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're meeting it. Right.
0: Right. It's intentionally
1: being hidden. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what I always think about. If we are not open about something, if something is something that we feel like we have to keep a secret or hush, hush, there's a reason why mm-hmm. we are feeling like we can't speak openly about that. And that's where we have to check ourselves about, you know, what we're doing if, because we know then if we're keeping something secret that it's not, it's not above board, that there's something problematic about it, you know, but yeah. there are so many different levels involved here, right? There's whatever agreements you had, you know, in writing as you on board whatever agreements you had between the practice and that employee and any poten- any violations of that agreement As part of the practice, you have the issue with insurance contracts. Some insurance companies, the contracts say that if you take insurance at one location, you have to to take it in other locations. That's an issue, Mm -hmm. right? So there's that issue. We have HIPAA issues. If they're using a telehealth platform, that is maybe not a HIPAA compliant platform. It's not one used at your office. Is there a BAA? You don't know, Mm -hmm. right? So many issues here. I guess one thing that I'm wondering again, sometimes these things happen so frequently and it raises the question of what is going on that people are doing this? Is there lack of clarity around best practice? What What's going on that this seems to be such a frequent occurrence at group practices? And I guess I'm wondering if you could talk, Whitney, about what are the best practices? If you work at an agency, mm-hmm. if you work at a group practice, what are some of the best practices if you do decide that where you're working right. isn't for you anymore?
1: Well, if you decide where you're working is not for you anymore, communicating about that, talking to your boss, I would never want to lose one of my people. But if one of them said, hey, like, I really want to start my own practice, I should be honored by that, that I inspired Mm -hmm. them to do this kind of work. Um, Now, I try to create a practice that's so amazing that they'd rather be here than do their own practice. Right. Mm -hmm. Knock on wood. (laughs) That's been going really well. But yeah, that open and honest communication, I think is so important in bosses being able to handle it, you know, and not taking it personally, not breaking down and inviting difficult conversations from our employees on a very regular basis, right? Because if I'm not inviting those tough conversations, when those do come up like that, they're not going to tell me. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. So I think it's important that we're inviting it we're meeting on a regular basis we're not just talking only when a problem happens because then you've lost your communication if you're doing that
0: yeah and can you maybe talk a little bit more for anyone who's maybe not in the group practice role who's sitting there going I'm so confused what's the big deal you know besides the ethics you know the ethics or contractual part of it with insurance companies for anyone who's like I don't get it what is the problem Can you provide some insight from the perspective of a group practice owner? Yes, I'll talk a little bit about our
1: guidelines here. And this situation helped me clarify those as well. So, and this is what I do in my consulting too I make these rules because I think they're so important. I love employees because this is part of it. Contract model does encourage people to work at multiple places. That is the idea of the model, right? Correct. A W 2 practice. They could work somewhere else, but it's really more understood that they work at that place. And at least in the state of Georgia, it's at will. So if someone's doing something that doesn't, I don't feel like meets the culture brand direction of the practice, I don't have to have them work here. So you could see that if someone worked anywhere else doing the similar type work. Now, I let them work at places that's not the same, like Mm -hmm. PRN at a hospital, you know, but if they're working at another private practice, seeing clients That is a direct conflict of interest. Like Mm -hmm. it's the exact same work they're doing here. And I want people to be fully invested in this practice because I'm fully invested in my employees. You know, I'm going to give you a lot and I expect you to give me a lot and we're going to give the clients a lot. So if you're working somewhere else, you're marketing there, you're working hard there, you're going to make, especially if you have your own practice, you're going to make that your priority because that's where you're going to make the most income in most situations. Now, the other thing, especially as a cash pay practice, we have to bust it to get clients. Like I spend tons of money and energy into getting those clients. So let's say I'm just going to make up something here. Let's say my employee, Sarah goes off and starts her own practice. Sarah Smith, good name there. Okay. So Sarah Smith goes off and starts her own practice. Even if it's on the other side of town, even if it's telehealth, people learn about Sarah Smith from me. I go around town. I say, yes, Sarah works at my practice. She sees adolescents, yada, yada, yada. They go, oh, great, Sarah. So they Google Sarah. And then her other practice pops up. So, oh, I could see Sarah at Whitney's practice for $130 a session, or I could see Sarah at her own practice. Mm -hmm. She'll take my Blue Cross Blue Shield. Oh, I'm going to go see her over there. So I have just spent money and energy marketing her at her other practice. Like it just doesn't work like that. (laughs) And you're going to lose a lot in that. So that's the other really big reason that I discourage that.
2: Well, and the other thing is that, you know, To the point about being at will and employees versus contractors is as a practice owner with employees, you can create covenants to restrict their ability to compete. Right now, they have to be reasonable. In Maryland, for example, it has to be reasonable. It can't be unreasonable. And I don't want to go into what reasonableness is because that's actually a discussion in itself. But the point is, you can have employees sign non-compete covenants that say, you know, geographic region or similar business, you know, and you can set time limits, you know, a year, two years, whatever it is. Contractors, you can't. So, to your point, just going back to what, the initial point you made, you know, another big difference between the contractors and employees, in addition to just the model itself being lending itself towards one being less um, inc- um, inc- uh, inclination to, you know, work in multiple different practices, you can also have control over those employees as to what they can do and actually have them sign different, different things. You can set policies to not compete. You know, and I also think that from an ethical standpoint, to your second point, um, there's really an ethical uh, perspective here as well, because if you're you know, positioning yourself as someone who's a clinician for a practice, and you're saying, you know, come, you know, come see me at this practice, or you're marketing this person saying, come see us at this practice, and clients are going online and they're seeing that, you know, this person now has their own practice. You know, there is a competition aspect, but I also think from a marketplace and kind of an ethical standpoint, there's you're creating confusion and doubt in the client's mind. Well, why is this person? You know, supposedly they're with Whitney. Why are they now over here? They take insurance; she doesn't. You know, I just think when you start opening these doors and these questions start coming up, then naturally the next thing that's going to, you know, issue or concern you're going to have, anyone's going to have, is that there's going to be the the higher likelihood of ethical violations happening here.
0: Mm-hmm. You're just
2: increasing the likelihood of some 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 mistake being made, whether it's an intentional or not intentional, especially not intentional of um something happening whether it's a client gets billed to insurance when they were already paid out of pocket somewhere else you know what i mean it, it just is very concerning so to your question to melissa's question you know and, and to add on to what you're saying i think this is why practitioners who are listening this is why it matters is because the whole situation can just create an abundance of um unenforced errors that can really snowball um and create huge issues for the clinician for the practice, for the client. Um, and that's why this is so serious.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it can be, it can feel really defeating, right? You know, I think some people don't realize all of the work that goes mm-hmm. into being a group practice owner behind the scenes mm-hmm. or know how expensive it can be to yeah. have a group practice, right? The marketing, the advertising, the building relationships, mm-hmm. all of the thought and the time and the energy that goes into that is sometimes taken for granted, maybe.
2: I think there's also, in, Whitney, I think you kind of touched on this, the loyalty aspect, but I think it's, you know, a professional aspect here, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a clinician and, you know, if you're in the shoes of Whitney's employee, right? You know, there's a way of conducting yourself, at least in Maryland, the mental health community, there's a lot of people doing it, but it's still a small community. Like a lot of people know each other and regardless of whether practice to compete or not, a lot of the clinicians are very much aware of who each other is. And when you kind of hold yourself out, or be, you know, as an employee, and you do, you know, behavior like this, it gets around. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't stay. It doesn't just stay, you know, quiet. Um, and if you start to gain a reputation as someone who's done this, or you burn enough bridges, it can really hurt you professionally as a clinician. You know, from a practice standpoint, it's really frustrating. I know clinicians who own practices become, you know, close to burnout dealing with this kind of stuff because they're just so fed up with having to struggle with this. And like, why am I doing this? You know. Um, I think, Whitney, you're an example, and, and you too, of course, Um, of practitioners who have practices that are vibrant and really, you know, are fulfilling for you guys. But I think that when something like this comes up, it can be really like just a blow to your self-esteem as an owner.
1: Oh, yes. I, actually, I was just in my uh, mastermind group right before this with some other group practice owners and... We just talked about that most of the time, the the balance and the difficulty of managing the employees mm-hmm, and all their needs and what they want. And then just, they say something to us, me sometimes, and I'm like, oh, that's going on. Or, oh, you felt that <laughs> way. And I do think they forget about the humanity of the group practice owner. Um, so it's, it's tough, but it's all ways that we can, you know, and this is what you're Season is about it's it's these bad things, but how did we grow from it? How mm-hmm. did we um, how did the practice get better and and I want to share this story about this situation um, right around the time this was happening, I also just personally was growing a lot and learning the importance of vulnerability. I was putting on a really brave face for everybody all the time, not realizing I was doing it. And so when this situation happened, I sat down with my team and was very vulnerable with them. I didn't go into the details about the situation because that's not appropriate, but just that she had gone and um, done something that I wasn't aware of and that I reminded all of them that if you want to work somewhere else, you have to review that with me in advance. You can't just go and do something, especially not something that's a direct competitive for what we're doing here. Um, And of course, everybody was like, we know that, we know that, you know. But but my vulnerability and us coming together, especially when she didn't like finish all those discharges and we really had to help pick up the slack, the team really came together. And when I look back at like my group practice growth, that was one of those pivotal moments mm-hmm. that we became a different kind of team because of it. And so I'm honestly grateful for that and grateful that I was vulnerable with the team. So like group practice centers, you do not have to have it all together, like, Use your team, let them encourage and strengthen you because it will provide an amazing culture.
2: Well, there's some, you know, I think, you know, I don't, I don't like using this term too often, but I think this is an example of what you're describing is iron sharpens iron, right? When things are at its hottest or the most pressured, how you perform under that, you know, can often be a really big uh, motivating factor to or propellant of change, you know, in a positive way that you can come out of it on the other end and be much stronger from it. Um, and I think that sounds like what you're describing. You you mentioned something that kind of garnered a question I have, and and that is, you know, what kind of changes then did you implement in your in your practice as a result of this experience?
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, and so I definitely made it very clear to them that they could not work at any other practice and work here. And talking to them about the importance of if you were not happy with where you're at, just verbalize that to me, like. I want to take this practice and give you what you need. If you have a good idea of something you want to make better or something you want to offer your clients, like you don't have to go do that somewhere else. We can mm-hmm. make that happen here. You've just got to tell me that, and we'll do it, you know? <laughs> and so those were some mm-hmm. of the really big things, but yeah, we, I put that kind of in the offer letter or I think it might be in my handbook actually mm-hmm. that yeah. explains. Yeah. It explains like you can't work at a competing practice while you're here. Now, I do let them, I don't have a non-compete as far as when they do finally leave here. If they want to go start their own practice, go at it. I'll let you take all your clients. Because the truth is, there's plenty of clients to go around, you know, and you're, I I just think there's something important because I get this question a lot in consulting about do you let people take clients or not when they leave? It's about the client's yeah, like these clients have paid all this money, made all this headway with that therapist just because maybe me and that therapist butt heads or they want to start their own practice. that doesn't mean clients should be suffering their own mental health mm-hmm. and then having to restart with somebody else. So, yeah, I do let them take those clients with them.
2: I also think, you know, as the attorney who's drafted non-competes for practices, mm-hmm. right, um, I think there's two points that I want to touch on that I really like that you said. I want to touch on the first one, which is the non-compete aspect, right? I have this conversation practice where, okay, well, how can I restrict, you know, competition and what, what can we put in place? And I'm like, well, listen, you know, if someone leaves your practice and goes down the street and knows the open office, the chances are, especially in our area, you know, I'm not sure about your area, but definitely in the Baltimore metropolitan area, right? If you have a practice, I guarantee you down the street from you, there's probably at least five or 10 different practices. They're already competing with you. So someone else joining that to do that is not going to affect your business, right? By and large. So to my mind, when someone leaves your practice to go start another practice or join another practice, you know, I don't see the big deal because there's, there's so many other people already doing it. Um, you know, so what I've started really, you know, kind of, you know, doing now is really focusing on, let's talk about what happens while the person's at the press, right? If they leave, they leave. The other thing though, and this is the second point you made, and I think this is a really you know astute point, is that, you know, I think the people who want to restrict or kind of restrict people from taking clients, it kind of, you know, is somewhat you know, oblivious or not taking into account reality. You know, I just, my own gut, and I can't, I don't have any empirical evidence for this, but my own gut says that I'm guessing somewhere between 40 and 60% of clients that a therapist sees when they, if the therapist leaves, the clients are going to follow that therapist because to your point, they already have a relationship. As long as it's not completely arduous, the person doesn't have to travel two hours to see the therapist. You know, they're not paying, you know, $100 more to see that therapist. The client's probably, if they have a good rapport, is going to want to leave with that with that therapist. And the reality is, as you said, at the end of the day, and so the, the client's driving force here, the client always has the right to make these medical, to the healthcare decisions themselves. A practice you cannot restrict a client, you know, cannot prevent a client from leaving. So why are you spinning your wheels trying to do that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, by and large, for the most part, with some exceptions here or there, you know, I generally think a practice shouldn't be trying to say to clients that you can't leave. Right, it's just not going to work out. Client's going to leave. They want to leave. The best thing you can do is give client the option. Say, here's your options. Right, so and so therapist leaving. You can go with them. If you want to stay here, I can reassign you to someone in the practice. You know, put the hands, the the options in the client. And I, I I think to your point, I think Melissa and you both are examples of this. You know, when you have you conduct yourself in this way, you're not going to worry about client because your reputation is going to remain intact. You're going to be still have a great reputation. You're still going to get client. Not gonna, it's not going to affect you. Um, that's not going to affect you just because some clients choose to leave with your clinician.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Whitney, is that open communication, right? Keeping things above board, knowing what are the policies, procedures at the practice where you're working, and just keeping things above board, making sure mm-hmm. that there's open communication, um, and that whatever you're doing, you're doing kind of along the terms of the agreement that you signed when you started working for that practice. Um, I had a feeling this was not part of like, you know, the main conversation we were going to have today, but I had a feeling that this topic was going to come up. um, And so I included it here. I was looking through the ACA Code of Ethics. The other day, I was looking for something totally different. And I ran across this one code just because I know this conversation comes up so often and people are like, is this ethical or is that ethical with these decisions? Um, So since we're there, just to put out there um, one of the codes from the ACA, recruiting through employment, right, which is different if we're talking about someone actively recruiting through your job versus this is like understood there's conversation about clients and the plan for clients. That's different, right? Recruiting clients versus, you know, whatever the agreement is out of practice. But it says counselors do not use their places of employment or institutional affiliation to recruit clients, supervisors, or consultees for their private practices. So, um, I know when I was, you know, in grad school and they're talking about ACA, you know, codes of ethics, I was not thinking about having a private practice. I was not thinking about having a group practice that so when I read it, you know, when I ran into it the other day, it kind of landed a little bit different when I heard it, but I thought I would put it out there since I, it caught my eye the other day. And I know that that's a conversation that comes up a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate you noticing that and bringing it up. It's always good for us to read that book. <laughs> When I was putting together my handbook with my attorney and, you know, Dan, make sure I'm saying all this correctly. He (laughs) talked about non-solicitation, which is pretty Mm -hmm. much the same thing, right? Like not soliciting anything from our clients or from the practice itself. Um, So that kind of handles that kind of code of ethic. And so we review that intake.
2: I want to say one comment. I'll let you continue because just, and that's what I think is most important for our practice to emphasize. right? The competition aspect. Yeah. Like I said, you know, we were just discussing, like, why leave? Solicitation, though, is what really can hurt your practice. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's absolutely important to to have a policy in place, you know, governing employees for that purpose. But anyway, so go, please go on.
0: Well, I was going to say, no, that was it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, for people who are like, what are you talking about? Non-solicitation? What does oh, that even mean? And how sure. is that different from a non-compete? Can sure. one of you clarify? Okay.
2: Sure. Let me pull my lawyer sleeves. No, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, generally we talk about non-competes, right? And 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 if you're, you know, as a clinician listening, you have to be very careful because some states have very specific rules about what you can and cannot do. Um, I'll take Maryland since that's where I am. You know, Maryland tends to look at it as the four corners, which is that as long as it's reasonable, you know, it doesn't unfairly prejudice um, a party, um, it generally be accepted if both parties are willing to accept the terms, right? So non compete what that says essentially is that for... Whatever the restrictions are, time period, geographic area, whatever it is, you know, if you leave a place of employment, you're not going to compete with that practice. That's generally the general idea of a non-compete. And there's some variations in how that can look and everything like that. A non-solicit just means that essentially if you leave a practice, then in fact, actually, with both non-competes and non-solicitations, you don't even have to leave, right? It can be while you're there as well, mm-hmm. right? But you're agreeing essentially to stay. The, the employee is agreeing that they will not solicit your clients for coming into the practice. They will not solicit business, right? They will not be confident. You know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, Whitney, you know, conflict of interest is not um, you're self-interested in a way that um, helping themselves that hurts the practice, right? Soliciting employees to leave. Hey, I'm starting a new practice. Come join me over here. That's solicitation. Hey, client, you know what? It's been great working with you. I'm starting a new practice. I haven't told management yet, but why don't you come over with me? That solicitation, right, and that can have—and Whitney, you touched on this—that can have a really huge impact on a business's bottom line and morale. You know, from a morale standpoint, that can really impact the business. So, you know, it's not uncommon to have practices. Say, we're going to have a non-solicitation for a while. You're here, right? Because you want to make it clear to employees. And again, it's about communication, right? If you're going to put these in place, you want to communicate what it is that you you can or cannot do. Right. These are what we call restrictive covenants. You're restricting the right of the employee in some manner here. Um, And that's really the difference. One is like, you know, I try, you know, getting someone to do something else to come to leave or come with you. Another one is, you know, can you compete or not compete?
1: Yeah, I think an important distinction that we're kind of saying is soliciting is when we actively bring people with us.
2: Yes. But encourage them to, to leave or encourage them to do so.
1: Yeah, yeah. But then also if a therapist leaves and a client looks them up and pursues them, just saying that that's not soliciting because Mm -hmm. the client is going after them, it's just that you can't go after the clients.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So this this is a point that's really important and comes up when I'm drafting these and I'm having this conversation. And that is at the end of the day, in this world of the mental health world, right? It's client-driven. Everything we do, you know, are you guys do as practitioners, you know, when I'm advising practitioners, It's client-driven. So the client always has the right to make a decision here about their healthcare choices, right? No matter what. And so I agree with you. It's a very important distinction to say it's different from the employee saying to the client or saying to another employee, come join me. If the client themselves says, I really like working with you, I want to leave and join you, then that's that's fine. That's the client's choice.
0: Yeah. So Whitney, I'm wondering from the perspective of, you know, being a group practice owner for any other group practice owners who are listening, I'm wondering if you have any recommendations or things that you think they can do either to prevent situations like this from coming up or just to have some greater awareness of them, like um, paying attention to red flags. Any thoughts that you have there?
1: Yeah. So looking back, the red flag that I should have seen was that she was working so much. Mm -hmm. Like she, she had a full-time job somewhere else. And then she wanted full-time here. And actually right before we had kind of been talking about making her a clinical director, I almost put her in that role. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, and in fact, I just hired a clinical director. It took like two years to get past that. Like, Oh, I was so scared to try that again Mm -hmm. after that happened. and so. Then she goes and starts her own practice. So it's almost like she she could not work all the time or she could not make enough money. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, there was something about that that was concerning. Um, there were also just a, a line of like weird medical things or weird situations that kept coming up. And she would tell me about those. And I remember just thinking it's not that it was awful. It was just kind of like, well, that's a really weird situation that you were in. But that's a weird situation. Um, This is a different employee, but I'll I'll use this because I think this is the better example. In the interview process, I have now learned to always ask about their background, their family, what made you decide to go into this field, because things that have happened in our families can really show a lot about how they're going to do as an employee. And I ended up finding out later that one of my employees had married a man who ate the same thing for every meal every day. And she was explaining to me how she divorced him after a year because she hadn't realized this, along with some other weird quirks about this guy. And I was thinking, that is really odd that Mm -hmm. you didn't notice that about someone you were dating. You know, and I was like, oh, that's a red flag. Like, I should be paying attention to these Mm -hmm. things. And then she ended up leaving in bad circumstances as well. And so paying attention to those Those dynamics, I think, when you're in the hiring and when you have hired and you're moving on, don't just write things off and go, well, that's weird and move on, like start paying attention to those things. And in our field, I mean, in everything, this is important, but in our field, we are doing clinical work. These employees have got to have it together because we are impacting these clients. And that is huge. And so my job as a director of a center is to make sure that everyone is in the place that they need to be to be able to do good clinical work and that we're not hurting clients in the process, right? Dan is clapping. I'm (laughs) clapping because
2: you just, you just, you literally just said something someone else said to me a couple of days ago and I thought it was such a great point.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, it is. Man, I can't, I can't say enough on that. So making sure that our people are in the right place to be able to do the work they're doing. And if they can't get to that place, they don't need to be seeing clients. And as hard as it might be as a group Mm -hmm. practice owner, you've got to say, no, this might not be the right field for you because we can't continue in that behavior.
2: The reason I was clapping was because you just said something someone else said, and I thought, not that I didn't know or think about before, but the way they phrased it, I thought was like so spot on. And what they said to me is they were a practice owner. They are a good practice owner. And they said, you know, I don't see clients directly anymore. They're like, so my ethical duty to clients is not, I'm not in you know, therapy with them, obsession you know, with them. But my ethical duty to clients is that making sure that the people who are seeing these people, I mean, that everything is right. Everything's working. Out, you know, everything's doing, everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. The clients are being helped the way they need to be helped. Right? And that conversation that we're having right now, that was actually what spearheaded that conversation with that particular client was, you know, there was something off with something happened with an employee. Um, and as you said, they noticed a the red flag and they started looking into it. Um, and so, I think that's such a great point. That if you're a clinician who runs the practice, or you're a clinician who wants to start a practice, or if you're a clinician who has a practice, your job is not just if to your thera- your clients, if you're seeing clients, but your job is actually to your clients in a way that you need to make sure that everyone who has contact with a client, especially those who are, who are providing the clinical services to the client, are actually in a place to do so and do so well, right? Because that in itself is an ethical requirement um, of your job, your job as, the, as the, 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 you know, the, the idea of the buck stops with you. That is absolutely true. Um, and I think your point about red flags, I think is really critical. If you're a group practice owner, one of the things you need to be looking at, in addition to the bottom line, in addition to the marketing and all the other things that are on your plane, and it's a lot, right? But it's also paying attention to your people, right? And it's it part of it is goes in hand in hand, making sure that you're making this a place that they want to work. But it's also keeping an eye out that if your gut all of a sudden says, that's odd, something's off there, that I think that as clinicians, you guys are attuned more so than the normal public to read body language, to pick up on clues that other people might not. So if you as a clinician, that red flag or a, a warning sign is going off in your mind, that's something you should look at. Worst case, the you know, best case scenario, it's nothing, right? But the thing is that, that by listening to that voice or that sign, you know, the internal sign that you're feeling, you may actually uncover something that needs to be addressed ASAP, right? It also provides an opportunity as a practice owner, if let's say you have a client who is in a situation where there's something going on, maybe they're having some sort of a problems at home, maybe they're having some sort of substance abuse problem, something's going on, or there's a healthcare issue, right? If you provide the space for them to get help, you can, you know, that can make them really endear to you as a practice owner as a boss. right? You want loyalty from someone, but be there for them when they most need it. right? Um, And so there's that point. I also think I've noticed you said something about this person, you were going to make them a clinical director. I've noticed in the last couple of years when I've had conversations with clinicians about um, employees or issues of employees that come up, it seems to be that the issues that come up with an employee, these are employees who are people who are super accomplished, super talented, right? People who like the person I'm talking to would say like, man, I, was, I wanted to promote them internally because they were so great. Right. And I think that goes to the heart of why is it that sometimes they can become a problematic employee or why can a problem arise? Because they themselves are, are good enough at what they're doing that they may want to go somewhere else. And it happens. Right. But the thing is, is I think you need to pay attention. If you're grooming someone to become, you know, move up in management, And you absolutely need to make sure that there are no red flags that are being triggered here. You know, and so I just want to stress the importance, I think, that as a practitioner, as practitioners, if you run a group practice, those those kind of gut feelings you have, don't ignore them. Don't ignore them.
0: Which I think can be hard, right? A lot of times, especially right now, people are like, it's so hard to find clinicians. It's so hard to hire right Mm -hmm. now. And so I think it makes it more challenging for people to trust themselves and to Mm -hmm. trust their instincts. Um, but knowing that it is really important. Well, and I think because... when you
2: said best, I think you said best when you, right? When you sat down with your team and you talked to them about what was happening wh- wh- as much as you could, you said, We came out of this stronger and you've actually added employees now, right? Oh, and yeah. I think if that that communication, right? That, you know, someone who is causing a problem, someone's a problematic employee, they can really detonate the workplace they can cause a massive amount of (laughs) of harm if you don't deal with it. So I agree with you, Melissa, but I also think that as a practice owner, you have to be willing to get pull your your bootstraps up and if you have to deal with it, you're going to have to deal with it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges for us is when we let an employee go, all the clients, Mm -hmm. right? And so... We have to think about their well-being. And so it's if I do that, what am I going to do with these 30 clients or maybe even 50 that somebody is seeing? And then having to disperse them among the other therapists that are still there because who knows how long it'll take to hire. Yep, It's a lot to consider. It's not just the employee. It's a lot more than that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, I'm that, sitting here thinking about all the people that I've had problems with throughout the years. And Melissa, you're probably doing the same thing. What is <laughs> oh, the common denominator. Not, I'm knocking on wood again, but I don't think it's really ever been a clinical issue. Like, Mm. I feel like they've done good clinical work. Mm -hmm. Every person I've had a problem with who's had to leave the practice on bad terms, it was because of something behaviorally they were doing Mm -hmm. outside of their clinical work. Yeah. Well, I
2: think in some ways, tell me if you disagree. Like, I think in some ways that's the issue is that if everyone's doing, someone's doing great clinical work and you're not, paying attention to those red flags. It's easy to overlook. Okay, well, if they're doing everything they need to be doing, they're noting their charts, what they need to be charts, they're seeing their clients on time, you know, okay, well, I'm really busy. So, you know, yeah, I had a kind of gut feeling about this, but okay, I, I, I'm being pulled in so many directions, I'm not paying attention to that, right? I absolutely agree with you that I think it's the behavior issue that sometimes is the bigger indicator that there's something, a myth, something you actually need to be paying attention to because a lot of times they may be checking off other of boxes and that's why it's easy to miss.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, it makes it really hard when those things happen as a group practice owner, you put so much heart and care mm-hmm. and intention into building your practice. But also, you know, speaking for myself, and I think a lot of other group practice owners would agree as you're building your team, there's a lot of care that goes into wanting to take care of your team. Um, whether that's through compensation, whether that's through benefits or culture. There's a lot of ways that as a group practitioner, you want to care for your team and show care. And so sometimes when those things happen, it's really hard because you know how much care you've put into the work and caring for your team. You know, one of the things that I often think about is kind of like this trickle-down effect now that I'm not seeing as many clients as I used to is really seeing my role as helping like, care for my team, so they're cared for, so that way they can do a good job of caring for their clients. Um, but when you put so much care and then something happens, it's like, oh.
2: We've said this before in this podcast and I've had this conversation with clinicians and this is to your point, your exact point, Melissa. I think this is where Whitney as an owner, Melissa as an owner, um, if you're listening in your own a practice, this is one of those things where, especially with employees, when there's employer contract issues, this is a business issue. And so, what clinicians I see struggle with most um, often is knowing and understanding and being okay with, you're going to have different hats. So, your training, maybe as a clinician, and your desire is to create a, a space where your employees feel welcome and wonderful and it's great practice. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's really important, right? That's, the, that's your training as somebody who's um, you know trained how to work, be collaborative, how to work to support other people. But the reality is that business, Is not always nice. Business, you know, there is a cold, hard aspect to business of running a business. It's about the bottom line sometimes. And sometimes you have to be able to take that off and put your business hat on, your CEO hat on. And sometimes that means that you're going to have to have the tough conversations. You're going to have to say, this is not working out. You got to go. Right. And I find that clinicians are like, oh, it's such, I worked so hard to get this person on board. I created this great culture. Why don't I understand? And I think at the end of the day, sometimes it's not about understanding. Sometimes people don't fit. And you, your job, in addition to being, you know, taking care of your people and your clients is to take care of the business, Mm -hmm. right? And that means that you have to make hard decisions that are not easy. A hundred percent, they're not easy, but you have to be willing to do them.
1: Yeah, I don't want to do those anymore. (laughs) Well, and to your
2: point... someone else can make those decisions.
0: I've reached my quota for the year, right?
2: This is why some clients I know hire practice managers. They hire clinical directors and practice managers and things like that because they're like, I really don't want to have to deal with that unless something goes really, really wrong, right? Or they come and talk to me and say, this is what we need to do, right? Do it. It's because they don't want to do that anymore. They want to be the face. They want to be the one promoting this practice they've built. And they want someone else to be the chief people person. And I think that's okay too, right? But you have, we talked about this mostly before as well is that you have to know yourself, right? If you're not up to that challenge or you don't want to do that, that's cool. Know that, be okay with that, and bring someone on board who's going to do it for you. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, and I think, you know, these are important conversations for a few reasons. I think sometimes there can be a perception that having a group practice is easy. And, you know, being a group practice, and I'm like, I don't know where that perception came from, but I think that it exists, right? And, and, you know, this is the reality that it's, you know, it's not so easy all the time.
2: I have a question for you, Whitney, um, along the same lines. Why do you think it is that group practice um, see these type of behaviors or issues with with employees? I wouldn't say so often, but it does come up you know why Why is it that this is something that comes up for for you know if you're running a group practice because it does, and it's not going to stop coming up. You know if you're running a group practice, this is an issue that's going to be I don't want to say ongoing, but it's going to occasionally come up every time for all practitioner owners, you know always, I think,
1: yeah. Well, this specific issue of people wanting to go start their own practice, I think that comes up a lot because people don't know what goes into starting a practice. Correct. Right. right, So all they see is the money. In fact, we're about to do our annual raise our rates because we do that every year. And. One of, one of my um, admin was like, all oh, the therapists, they must be wondering, where does all that money go? Like, why am I not getting that money? You know, and they just don't realize how many things I pay for. Mm-hmm. And the expenses are only increasing as the team grows mm-hmm. to meet their needs. So I I think that's part of why people go start their own practices most of the time. The I just want part. you to
0: say that again. I That was... That's so important. People, you know, do not know where all the expenses are. And the more you grow, the more those expenses grow too. Exactly. And it's the more important that they show up at work and see clients. If they
1: don't do that, I'm not going to be able to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I got savings. It's okay. But all that just to say is they need to come to work. Um, But as far as like all the behavior stuff, let's just be real. Therapists became therapists for a reason. Most of us went through something ourselves that made us go to therapy or we have our own behavioral stuff, right? I mean, every person has that. Everyone has personal stuff they bring to their jobs. But I think therapists in particular have a little bit more concerns. And I mean, that's what makes us good therapists, but it's also what makes it a little harder to run a group practice. I don't know if you agree with all that, Melissa.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I have come to believe is that wherever you have people, you have group dynamics, Mm -hmm. right? So you know, whether we're talking about a family, whether we're talking about like a faith community, whether we're talking about uh, a place of employment, wherever you have people, you have human behavior and you have group dynamics. And sometimes they are challenging, challenging to to deal with. Sometimes they're good and sometimes, you know, those hard things come up.
2: Mm-hmm. And I, I would encourage group practice listening to understand that what you guys are describing is not unique to group practice or mental health world, right? This goes back to my point about the fact is at the end of the day, you're running a business. All businesses have this issue, Mm -hmm. right? I actually think that practitioners like yourself make great business owners, right? Because you guys have an element that a lot of other people don't. You have training in how to work with people.
0: (laughs) Dan's got so much faith in us. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I absolutely... But no, but I mean, I
2: do. Because you guys come out of school being trained and going, you get your experience trained working with people. You have, you know, it's easy to be a boss, right? But it's not easy to be a leader. That's the difference. And so being a leader means that you are firing on all cylinders. You're checking off the boxes of taking care of your employees, taking care of your staff, being aware of the group dynamics, managing that while also managing the bottom line of your business. It's not easy. Like to your point, I will say it is not easy. I don't know who's saying that. It's not easy running a business or a group practice in general at all. So I don't know where that's coming from, you know. But I do think that practitioners, I think, have a set of training that actually gives them a leg up in some ways over some people um, in terms of running a business because of your skills with your training with people right? with working with people in, in collaboration.
0: Yeah, and I'm just thinking, Whitney, about the work that you do as a consultant. Also, I think it's so important you know, speaking about that vulnerability piece. And I hear you saying with my team, I had to be vulnerable and that that Mm -hmm. was a really big step. And I think that that applies to the work that you're doing now as a consultant, right? Just being really upfront about this is, this is what practice, private practice life might look like. This is what group practice life might look like. Um, And just having those honest conversations so that people have realistic expectations and, and to hear it from you, someone who's offering those services.
1: Yes, I totally agree. I'm usually a pretty straight shooter because that's what I would want someone to do for me.
0: Yeah.
2: Most of to, to kind of piggyback on what you said is something that that's why it's so important to have an offloader. That's why it's so important for the very minute that you're talking to them about the idea of joining your practice, you're upfront with them about what the expectations are. You're upfront with them about what does it mean to be here? Here's what our values are. Here's what our belief system is. Here's what you know how we handle. Like you know, you know, we don't want you working somewhere else. You you know, this is a full time job. You know, laying all those expectations out up front, so that you know, part of it's so that they can have an easier time kind of you yeah. know joining the team and being aware of what's expect them. But it also means that later on, if there is ever an issue. They can't come back and say, well, I didn't know that, right? You've made those expectations. You've laid the foundation of what's required of you as to be an employee of this practice from the very beginning. There's been nothing hidden. It's all been laid out in the handbook. It's all been laid out in the offer letter. You know, I think that when a practice owner does that, you're minimizing. It's not to mean it won't still happen, but I think you are actually minimizing though you know, lessening the chance of that becoming a problem.
0: So Whitney, if people are wanting to connect with you, how can they find you? I know that in some of the places that they can follow you, they can find some singing, some dancing. How can people find you if they're interested in connecting with you?
1: Yes, a couple of different ways. Um, So I do like to do some singing and dancing on Instagram. So feel free to follow me on there, Whitney Owens Consulting. I'm going to be doing that.
2: I did not know that.
1: that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm getting really into reels. And they're a lot of fun. You know, if you can't have fun at your job, then what are we doing? So make sure that you check those out. Um, I'd love feedback on it. And um, I'm having fun watching other people's reels too. Um, I do have a website, WhitneyOwens.com. You can go there to get more information. Melissa mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I run a membership community for faith-based practice owners. We meet every single week and talk about business stuff. Um, and I'm actively involved in that community. So you can get that information there. Um, I am hosting a podcast. And so hopefully that will launch by the time this episode launches. I'm in the process of recording that last episode to get that out. So that's going to be called the Wise Practice Podcast. So you can get that and then if you're interested in some consulting or you just want to schedule a call and chat with me a little about your practice you can um, just email me whitney at whitneyowens.com
2: awesome whitney thank you so much for joining us and to everyone listening i hope that you found this as interesting as we did this is particularly a useful episode i think for you if you're listening as a practice owner because this really goes to the heart of you know, what some of the, the meat and potatoes of owning a practice that come up. You know, as always, you can always reach out to us on our Facebook page um, or by connecting with us on the Protect Your Practice website. You can also reach out to me personally, Daniel Mayer, at my webpage, danielmayerlaw.com. You can also email us at admin at danielmayer.com. And you can reach out to Melissa at lifespringcounseling.net. That's her page. We both would love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, feedback. But other than that, Thank you everyone so much for joining us. Whitney, thank you so much again. And we'll talk to everyone soon.
0: Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.